Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art of Citizenry podcast, where we navigate the complexities of doing good in an unequal world. I am your host and in-house educator, Manpreet Kaur Kalra. It is often said that you can learn about the history of a community or culture through their textiles. However, that is only possible if those textiles have survived the human experience of war and conflict. In many countries, cultures have been erased by colonial homogenization or appropriated by selective extraction. During this episode, we explore the impact of colonization on indigenous communities in Colombia, how the legacy of colonization continues to dictate social structures and its impact on traditional art forms. Before we dive in, I want to welcome everyone to this conversation. From the social entrepreneurs out there to the fair trade advocates, thank you for taking the time to have these important conversations. With that, let's get started. Today, I am joined by Tatiana Andrea Ordonez Casallas of Zuhaza, a home textile studio based in Bogota, Colombia. Following an era of intense conflict, which continues to shape and affect Colombia today, Zuhaza seeks to participate in the peacemaking effort to reunite and heal the country through art. Tatiana will be sharing her journey with rediscovering the rich history of her country and how that has influenced the way she approaches her business. Be sure to check out the show notes for accompanying links and resources. Tatiana, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. To start, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your journey. Thank you so much, Manfred, for having me here. I love uh, joining you in this conversation. Well, I started my business a little bit uh, longer than six months ago, but the journey really was, you know, two years of work coming back to Colombia. Um, I was living abroad for more than seven years, so. The journey started once I came back and I was trying to really understand who I was and what type of work I really wanted to do. I have a background in textile design. I went to an incredible art school that really focused a lot in craftsmanship and the importance of understanding the process behind the things that we use today. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's the passion I came with uh, when I came back to my country. But I was really lost because, yeah, living abroad for so long and having all these other experiences and just not knowing exactly how I could fit back into my home country was complicated. <laughs> so yeah, so I came back with the desire of finding um, a group of people that wanted to partner with me in a new project, a project to start a business around craft, around textiles specifically. Uh, I didn't like 
the word business at the beginning, and I never thought I would be a businesswoman ever. So I spent some time traveling and just meeting people, getting to really relearn my country, relearn my, uh, my culture, especially because I grew up around a time where the conflict in Colombia around the 90s and early 2000s made the country very not easy to travel. It was really unsafe. So um, yeah, I grew up in the main city of Bogota and there were a couple places that you go that are touristic, but that's it. Like apart from that, you have zero understanding of who, <laughs> who's part of your country. Truly, my passion was also uh, linked to me wanting to know my country and know who lives in it. So yeah, that's the way that I kind of started. And I met this incredible group of women that dedicate themselves to spinning, weaving, and making fabric out of organic cotton. Yeah, they basically just started from <laughs> sitting us in a table and discussing the ways that we truly envision a different business model, talking about our dreams, talking about where we want to be, talking about where we want our country to be in a couple of years. And that conversation really just sparked joy in my heart and decided that this was the right people to start this project with. And um, they also decided that I was the right to, to collaborate with. Yeah, that's how I started. <laughs> I feel like that connection really comes out in the name of your business. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of Zuhaza? The name came after I met the cooperative of weavers that I currently work with. They started to work with me on a couple samples and we did um, like two weeks of work together. And the experience of working with them, uh, exchanging knowledge, exchanging ideas, talking about our lives, sitting and just drinking a cup of coffee. All of those moments truly made me think like about the name for the business. I really wanted the name to embody what my vision uh, for the type of community. The name is mixed between two words of the Muisca people from the Andean region of Colombia, where I'm from actually. We're located in the Andes, and this group of people lived right in the center. Uh, sadly, they were mostly exterminated, like mostly all of their culture was gone. I think the nostalgia of, of not knowing really if I'm maybe uh, part of my like, uh, ancestry is maybe Muisca, like I don't know. Really, that loss of a culture of an entire group of people, thinking about them and taking their language, my ancestor. Uh, combining them together and making a new word that embodied for me sisterhood. Because it's kind of like thinking about uh, the Muisca people and the sad result of what happened to them and where we are today. We are trying to preserve culture. We're trying to preserve knowledge and ways of living. And our hope is to honor the Muisca with using their word and using the word uh, of sisterhood to truly create a business that is not just about the product that we obviously invest a lot in and we love making it, but it's more about the type of environment we want to create, kind of give a message about what work should be like for people. It's interesting. When we think about the aftermath of colonization, we often fail to acknowledge that whole communities, cultures, and societies have been erased from existence. When you say the Muisca people were exterminated, what exactly do you mean by that? In Colombia, there are many ethnic groups and there still remained a lot of different indigenous groups around our country, but a lot of them, the main ones that we learn in school, back in the pre-colonial times, the largest groups, let's say, in terms of population, you don't see 
much culture left. And where, where, what I mean about that is that you just learn it in a book and that's it. It's completely gone. It's like, okay, where did they live? Where are their settlements? Where is the art? You see it in like, you know, glass boxes in museums and that's it. You read in history that the majority of them either were completely killed in battle uh, by Spanish colonizers or they were killed by diseases that also the Spanish colonizers brought. Yeah, maybe some people have heritage of, you know, of the Muisca people, but as a culture, it's completely gone. Like there's nothing that like can tell you this is the Muisca people, this is the way we live, this is our food, like nothing. It's really disheartening how much history has been lost to war, conflict, and colonization. It makes me think of how, as a global society, we are prone to compartmentalize for the sake of simplification. This need to put people in a box, I feel, can often end up erasing identities, and especially those identities that make us unique. It reminds me a bit of an article you wrote about your first encounter with race when applying for a social security number in the United States when you came here as a student. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so that time was really interesting because prior to that, I seriously had never thought about, you know, race as much. So yeah, I went to get my social security number, I'm registering, and I have to fill out this form. I start reading uh, to, you know, like check if you're, you know, male or female and your age and then race. And there's not like something specific to write. There's just boxes you have to tick. The options were just white, black, Asian or Asian Pacific, and then Hispanic. And I mean, obviously, I know that I would be considered a Hispanic in the U.S. But I think what went through my mind in that moment is there's so many different people in Latin America and people that are considered Hispanics. And to me, the word race speaks a lot about ethnicity. So I was a little bit confused about, okay, I mean, I definitely can tick Hispanic, but I want to understand what does that entail. And um, after having a conversation with a friend that was with me doing that registration, she was um, Hispanic too, but she is Mexican and she is um, white. And for her, she was suggested that she should put up other because she didn't really look like what people would um, categorize as as a Hispanic, someone that is brown like me. So that just made me start questioning, like, this doesn't make sense. This like categories do not make sense at all. And it makes me uncomfortable. That just made me question in Colombia how we think about race because we never talk about it, which is a really big problem. We don't have an idea of exactly where our ancestry lies. Like, who are we? Like, where do we come from? And that is also problematic because it makes you feel kind of like um, a void in your identity when you encounter uh, systems that try to structure or put you in the specific categories and you just feel out of the box. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. I agree. As a society, we often feel this need, at least in the United States, to put people in a box. But that can be really dehumanizing. I do think what you said about having open conversations about race and recognizing that even within one country, we can have a complexity of experiences is important. I experienced this as someone with Indian heritage. People outside of India often assume that the experience of being from India is standard across all people with Indian heritage, but that's false, obviously. 
that rejects how within a country people have different experiences based on a variety of factors, including religion, socioeconomic status, region. I mean, look at the United States. My husband grew up in Michigan, and his experience is vastly different than my experience growing up in California. We also see this often in the social impact space, where we create these single stories of people from countries, and sometimes even continents, right? Like Africa is your classic example of people thinking of Africa as a country, but it's a continent with such diversity of culture. And what that does is it really erases historical context and the rich heritage of the various communities that reside in any given country or continent. This single narrative then reinforces harmful stereotypes. You've talked about how in Colombia, race isn't just about skin color, but wealth distribution too. Can you touch on that a bit? So when I started to talk about a little bit of the context of race and class, I realized that in Colombia, they're so intertwined. It's not necessarily that someone that is of a darker skin like me would immediately face racism. It has to do a lot with your wealth. I started to look at just the nation and to see where in the nation where the Afro-Colombians were located and the indigenous populations were located, our minorities. Sadly, the Afro-Colombians are located in some of the most poor regions in our country. Um, To to give people an, an understanding of Latin America, we have the highest index of inequality. So when I say that you are in an impoverished area compared to a wealthy area, the gap is enormous. It means that someone can, you know, afford mansions and a lot of education and live very comfortably compared to literally uh, struggling with malnutrition, very, very basic needs not being met. So with that in mind, 85% of Afro-Colombians in the Chocó region, which is one of the poorest in the country, they live in that specific area that is um, affected the most um, in terms of the wealth gap. And then you look at our indigenous populations and the second most poorest department, we call it region, in the country is um, all populated by our indigenous communities. Um, So for me, that was just a clear example of... Um, yes, we might not talk about race and we might not, it might not be the thing that is like first, like in our minds, but if you look at just how distributed the wealth is in our country, it clearly, clearly shows racism. It clearly shows uh, how it's uh, generations and generations of completely ignoring a lot of these sectors of the country has caused our minorities to suffer the most. And yeah, and the, the worst part of it is that we don't even know. We don't even know what is going on in these places. The lack of information, the lack of coverage, it has to do with a lot of other internal conflicts, but the lack of information that we have of our own people is very, it's just heartbreaking for me. You know, we often talk about racial justice and economic justice as separate entities altogether, but I strongly believe that the two are so interconnected. In the United States, conversations around race are tied to ethnicity. However, in countries like Colombia and India, they're also deeply tied to skin tone. For example, in India, this obsession with fair skin, I believe, 
has existed pre-colonialism, but became intensified by colonization. In light of all the conversations over the last few months, many Bollywood stars have come out in support of Black lives. However, those same stars have made so much money by being the face of skin whitening products. This idea of fair is beautiful, can't be ignored, because I feel that when talking about race, we have to acknowledge that in many societies, skin color comes with power. And when I say many societies, I feel like in so many societies, in almost all societies, skin color is very intertwined with power. You mentioned that you have darker skin. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about how your skin tone has played out in your life? Uh, I can pinpoint a moment where I definitely felt less than because of the color of my skin. I went to a really privileged uh, bilingual school and really the majority of the people that went to my school were fair skinned. I actually was one of the darker ones, which is interesting in a country where, you know, you have so many different skin tones. And I did feel that I looked darker than other of my peers. And as a grown up already, I mean, I can think about those moments when I was a child and truly remember that how much it confused me, how much it actually confused me about, wow, like, I am not that beautiful then, or I wish I was prettier. I started to truly think about, um, you know, if I had this eye color or if I had lighter hair, like all of these things, like, oh, I would be more beautiful if I looked like this person. I mean, it had to do a lot with comments in schools and kids, you know, making racist jokes and like making people feel less. Uh, But also the culture we're around, of course, the, the movies we watch, the the, the dolls you play with or the toys that you play with, all of those things tell you this is beautiful and you are not. So I truly see that in Colombia, even though we don't you know, say it out loud or we discuss it as much, there are comments all the time of, oh, this kid, he, you know, his dad is darker and his mom is lighter and he came out looking more like the mom. Like, that's beautiful. They wouldn't say like, if the baby was darker, I'm sure they wouldn't say the baby is not beautiful, but they make an emphasis on how beautiful this baby is because he is blonde, because he had the lighter features. And together with that, in Colombia, we suffer of a colonialist mindset and so many things. We um, think, you know, the US and Europe are just the best places let's all go there. Uh, we need to, you know, be more like Europe. We need to behave more like them. And so there, you, you grow up like that. And sadly, many people that do have the opportunity to study um, abroad and go outside, which I had, and I'm so thankful I did. But many people use that as a, as a way out. So yeah, it is really deeply rooted. That makes me reflect on the idea of whiteness. The National Museum of African American History and Culture has this excellent article on their website exploring the concept of whiteness, which they thoughtfully define as the way that white people um, and their customs, cultures, and beliefs tend to operate as the standard, right? So that they've become this social standard by which all other groups are compared. In my understanding, this normalization then manifests manifests itself in form of cultural hegemony, power dynamics, and racist power structures that have been internalized by marginalized communities themselves. 
This makes whiteness something to strive for, often putting what is considered global north countries on a pedestal like the one you described. I'm curious, for you as someone who came and studied in the U.S., what made you decide to go back to Colombia? Because I feel like that's probably a really unique experience. The opportunity of going abroad truly is something that shaped me, being able to uh, study in a field that sadly here in Colombia, art and design is not something that I saw they invested as much in universities. I think at the beginning, I truly thought I would probably just never come back. I mean, not never come back, like I will come back, but <laughs> like, you know, move, move to another country because that's generally what everyone would do if you had the opportunity to live, you know, in the US or in Europe or Canada, you truly do have other opportunities. If you can get a, a job, the income that you get is very different from here. So there are a lot of incredible opportunities of if, you, if you're able to, to get them. But I think everything changed when I was in college. And when I started to encounter a lot of these dynamics, a lot of the dynamics of race, a lot of the dynamics of identity, it was the first time that I truly started to ask myself where, where I come from, who I am. And that always came back to Colombia. Um, how much I loved my country and I didn't even know it. I didn't even acknowledge it before growing up. And being separated from that culture, from the warmth of my people, of the language, of our music, of everything, I think I was just not just drawn in a way of nostalgia, like, oh, that's so awesome, but more of, wow, like I truly see the image that Colombia has in the world, sadly, is so negative, and that hurts me so much. It's so it's so bad um, because of one like really terrible person. One, you know, it's very few people that create a stereotype of of your country, and so I think encountering those stereotypes and truly saying like, no, my country is so much more than that. I like, have you ever been to my country? Like, you can't, you know, just make funny jokes about you know, uh, drugs and this, if you've never even experienced Colombia. So I think that was the moment when I, yeah, I really wondered how it would be if I come back and I would invest somehow in changing the image of my country. I had no idea how to do that or, you know, how would that plan out? But uh, when um, I studied craft and textiles and saw that textiles were, you know, a, a universal language, a language that is found in every continent. And it's really an imprint of people's culture is, to me, textile is just a beautiful language. And I think through textiles and craft and my love for culture, I started to truly think about the possibility of coming back to Colombia and studying my heritage of textiles and oh like what type of textiles do we have i know very little of that just a curiosity is sparked about craft in colombia so yeah like when my visa was over and i had the chance of either staying and trying to find a job or come back i think i i was in my heart was in the place of acknowledging that i needed to be back that there was a lot of unanswered questions there was a lot that I wanted to find out for myself. There was a lot I loved about my country and that I just felt called to be back and exploring that with the idea of telling a different story of saying like, yeah, we have a lot of problems. Like a lot of other countries, we do have a lot of issues, but there's so much more to tell. Like there is 
another story to tell. And there is um, sadly a lack of opportunities that people have had in Colombia. I am one of, I would say, very little percentage of Colombians that have had the lives that I've had of um, studying abroad and speaking a second language. The majority of the population hasn't had that privilege. So I, I think I felt responsible to do something about it. I can't just leave and be like, oh yeah, I'm Colombian and I'm coming, you know, to just visit sometimes and that's it. Like I really truly felt a responsibility to be back and be like, I was given this chance to go out, to learn, to just get educated. I, I have, I need to come back. There's no other way. I need to come back and, and see what this is, how I can reinvest in my country, even if it's through design, even if it's through craft, that it doesn't seem a, a, like a huge thing, but I think a craft has a lot to tell us about someone's country and identity. As a society, I feel we really fall victim to the single story, as you were describing. That mentality does so much harm when it minimalizes the complexity of community identity to a single anecdote. And unfortunately, that single story feeds and reinforces really harmful stereotypes. Also, to your point on the power of textiles, I do believe so much of history is told through textiles. I would love to hear more about how you're incorporating the heritage of Colombia and Colombian textiles into your work. Yeah, when I arrived back, I started to travel my country, just learn what is, you know, what are the textiles formed here. Previously, actually, to being back to Colombia, actually, I lived in Guatemala for a year and I, I admire how they have preserved this craft. And in Guatemala, Mexico, and Peru, for example, are uh, countries that have done a great job in preserving amazing, um, extensive library of knowledge in textiles. In Colombia, our craft techniques are a little bit more varied. Um, there's not just textiles. The biggest art form here is uh, basketry and different forms of basket making and in different regions different materials. So there's a lot of diversity within just a fiber because technically basketry could still be like represented as a, as a textile because it's a form of weaving. In Colombia, textiles do tend to look a little bit more different than the typical South American piece of cloth because every ethnic group is so different, they interpret textiles differently. And that fascinated me. It fascinated me to know that even in such a small territory, we could have different interpretations of one material, different interpretations of an art form. Many of these art forms, sadly, they, they're the people that started them or that our ancestors that carried this knowledge, a lot of them um, were, um, yeah, like a lot of this knowledge was uh, burned or was completely lost and it never um, it was something that was never preserved for years. So for me, it's like, wow, how many things have we lost? How many things have we lost over the years? Like we can see some of the things we have today, but I just, I cannot believe I've one piece of cloth that used to exist in the region that I'm working on right now with the artisan. Uh, if that's the only piece of cloth they have left from their ancestors, I cannot imagine the extensive knowledge that was here and that sadly we will probably never <laughs> get it back. So yeah, so my passion was to try to understand this language, um, specifically, as I said, because many groups in Colombia, they, you know, they interpret textiles differently. So 
in the community that I'm in right now is a cotton growing community. Their heritage uh, is growing cotton organically and spinning it by hand, weaving it. So that's the context within textiles that I find myself in. Often in social impact, it's common to hear people talk about reviving or preserving traditional crafts. My fear often with that mentality is the fact that through using a capitalist approach to preservation, we are losing historical context. What are your thoughts? First of all, understanding their textile form. You know, they're working with cotton. They're not working with palm fiber or with, a nut or with wool. They're working with specifically with cotton. So what does that mean to them? Who were these people that grew cotton and they actually um, traded it with other ethnic groups in Colombia before the Spanish colonizers came? That fascinated me. And the women actually have a small museum in their workshop where they teach people this. And I thought... That was incredible. It was incredible that these ladies were so, are so um, passionate about their ancestry and at least the little that they know about it, they want to rescue. They don't want to let it, you know, completely be lost. And it's difficult because we live in a very industrialized world. Things are made very fast and very cheaply overseas. And so making something from scratch from, you know, investing in growing a plant to transforming plant fiber into a textile that takes time, that takes resources, that, um, yeah, it's expensive. It's expensive to make. So for us, mostly starting a business that would create textiles, preserving these art forms, these techniques was the way to go. Because, I mean, it's always um, a debate, (laughs) I think an internal debate that I have of, well, these textiles were never meant to be sold this way. You know, textiles were always meant to be used by the community or, you know, the actual um, meaning of making a textile has changed. And that's the reality that we are in right now. Uh, but in order to preserve it, we need to kind of live in this monetary exchange world. Um, so for us, it was the way to go. It was the way of, okay, well, we'll make textiles. Um, representing our Colombia in an abstract way, representing who we are, representing our values, um, and start a business that will create sustainable income so that they can continue living by making this craft and not just, you know, continue to, to, to have an income to make these textiles, but an income that would truly, um, yeah, make them know that they are worthy. Like we are all worthy of having enough to eat, to get dressed with, to give a good education, to even achieve our dreams. Like that is our goal to not just cover the basic needs. But I mean, if I was given the opportunity of, of, of education and of travel, I, I cannot say that, you know, you can't have that. Like who, are, who am I to say that? So I think uh, we truly just want to be able to have uh, to take what we have, the knowledge and the history that exists in this region, and be able to tell a story through our kind of more um, modern textiles that still preserve so much tradition and history and the the soul of who we are is in there. Um, Regardless if it's a pillow or if it's a blanket, we believe that the making of this textile represents uh, preservation of this craft. You know, one of the things that I think about, and I would love your take on it, is when we think about textiles and when we think about 
you know, introducing them into this global marketplace. There's this really fine line that we play between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you navigate that with your business? Oh, my goodness. Yes, it is a really um, complex (laughs) world we live in. (laughs) Um, Yes, I think cultural appropriation is just terrible, terrible taste. Like it's, it's one of the most, I think, um, irrespectful things you can do to someone and to a community. We see tons of fabrics that have symbols that have print, you know, that is sacred (laughs) to many, uh, cultures that has a history using it just to profit the ones that are controlling the company and abusing the ones that you know, that you're stealing this from actually. So it is really complex. And when I started the business and when I came to Colombia, yeah, I struggled to really, um, I was a little bit scared of going into it because it is a really, it's a fine line, I think. It's a fine line between someone really um, taking something that's not yours and profiting from it and being able to elevate, to tell a story. Um, So when I came to Colombia, already thinking about that. Um, it was all about my team and talking with my team about what they are already doing, the craft and the products that they're already making and what they feel comfortable doing and what they don't. I think it just comes to that. Um, so I think it's really sitting at the table, collectively making decisions, making sure that if, for example, we worked in a community where there were specific symbols of the um, printed symbols in the fabric that were, you know, sacred or had a specific uh, meaning behind them, the first thing you need to do is, hey, like, teach me about this. What do you guys feel about this? What is the symbol? Um, And if the community that you're working with is not comfortable using that, you know, as beautiful as, as it might be, you can admire it. But if they're not comfortable in using it for, like, you know, economic profit, then that is an absolutely no. Like, no matter if you're, um, you know, if you're trying to teach people about this culture, or you know, in, in you ha- might have good intentions of, um, yeah, of telling people about this specific culture and elevating the culture. But if you never had permission <laughs> to use it or to, you know, create new things out of it, um, then I think that's plainly wrong and completely the other way around. As I said, it's a fine line that you just have to have to respect the makers and the actual owners of that symbol. With that, I want to thank all the listeners for tuning into today's episode and extend a special thank you to Tatiana for joining me today and sharing her valuable insights. Please be sure to check out the show notes for links to follow Zuhaza and shop their beautiful collection. To learn more about Art of Citizenry and for information on future webinars and workshops, please visit artofcitizenry.com. You can also find me on Instagram at at MonfreathCalra. Please remember to subscribe to Art of Citizenry podcast on your favorite listening app. From here in Seattle, sending positive and healthy vibes your way. 